All right, guys, so we're in Lesson 7. We're going to look at the next prophet in line in your Old Testament, which is the minor prophet. It's one of the minor prophet books, but the prophet Joel. Okay, the prophet Joel. And uh, so we're going to talk about the date of the prophecy. There's a lot of this, this one book. We're not sure when it was written. So there's a lot of discussion about that. We're going to talk about the prophet itself. And then we're going to talk about why this prophecy was written and what the message is, okay? So why don't we get right into it. With a lot of the prophets, okay, you can determine from the date if they were pre-exilic, that means before the exile to Babylon, exilic, meaning they were a prophet during the exile, or post-exilic, that means they were a prophet after they returned from the exile. Joel isn't that clear, okay? The prophet Joel isn't that clear as far as when it was written, but that doesn't mean it doesn't, we're not going to understand what he's saying, okay? So let's talk about some things about the date. So the first thing I need you to understand is no information is given in the opening verses to establish the date of this prophecy. So the book itself doesn't tell you when the prophet Joel was ministering, when he was prophesying, okay? So we don't know exactly when this prophet was prophesying. We don't know if it was before the exile. If it was before the exile, was he prophesying to the northern kingdom? Was he prophesying to the southern kingdom? Was he prophesying to both? Was it during the exile or was it after? And when exactly after? Okay? So we, we don't know anything about the date of the prophet. Now, scholars have proposed various dates ranging from the 9th to the 2nd century B.C. That's a pretty big gap of about 700 years there. Okay? All right? So it could have been anywhere in those 700 years. Now, those who hold to a pre-exilic date, so there are some scholars who feel that it was written before the exile, okay? Those who hold to a pre-exilic date look to its position in the Hebrew Old Testament. Well, they'll say it's a pre-exilic book because it's right after Hosea. And remember, we just studied Hosea. Hosea was before the exile, and he was preaching to who? The northern kingdom. So they're saying, because of the position of the book, that it's a pre-exilic prophet. Uh, it's a weak argument, okay? It's a weak, weak argument. They also point to the naming of Israel's early pre-exilic enemies. So when you read the book, there will be judgment pronounced on some of the older enemies of Israel, such as Edom, such as the Philistines, and so forth. Those are all enemies from an earlier period of Israel's history. So the scholars believe this has to be a pre-exilic book because if it was post-exilic, the enemies of Israel were Babylon, you know, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, those enemies. So it couldn't possibly be, you know, from the post-area because those enemies aren't mentioned in the book. So some scholars believe that the prophecy was written in the aftermath of Judah's only queen, Alethea. And that was in 8, 
35 BC. Now, if you remember from Kings, she was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. She was married to a son of David, and she became the queen. That son of David was killed. So what did she do? She had all the sons, all the grandsons, all the children killed, and she assumed the throne, except for one baby. One baby boy escaped, and he was hid by the high priest until he reached the age of seven, and you remember the story, then the high priest with all the guards pronounced him king. She came in and said, treason. High priest said, get her out of here, and they killed her. Okay, so this was a period when she, a very wicked woman from the northern kingdom who was not a follower of Yahweh, was the ruler of Judah. Okay, so they're saying that this was probably written in that era. Okay, but I'm just telling you what some scholars think, all right? Hence, the lack of a reference to a king and the reference to the elders. So there was no king during her reign, and there were the elders. So when you look at the, look at the book, you'll see that there's a reference to elders, but no king, okay? So they also point to Joel's reference to the temple, which was destroyed in 586 B.C., so the fact that Joel would mention a temple, which after the exile, was there a temple after the exile? No, because who destroyed it? Nebuchadnezzar, okay? So they're saying, okay, he's talking about the temple. Those who hold to a post-exilic date, look here. So those who hold to a view of a post-exilic would uh, look to the reference to the elders instead of the king. So after the exile, there was no king, right? just the elders. So they would say, no, no, the reason why it's just elders is because it's after the exile and there's no king. They also point to passages that quote other prophets, including Ezekiel. Joel quotes Ezekiel, not by name, but by what he said. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Joel quotes Ezekiel. There's also a reference to Greek slave trade in Joel 3.6, which reflects the post-exilic time period. After the exile, that means after the decline of Babylon and the Persians, who starts to emerge as a powerful force in the Middle East area? Anybody in the Mediterranean area? Greeks. And who was the greatest Greek king ever? Anybody know? How about if I told you his name is Alexander? Okay, Alexander the Great, because he defeated the Medo-Persian Empire, took all of that area, considered himself to be a god, and died at a young age of 30. But they, by this point, are starting to emerge... And he talks about the Greek slave trade. So they're saying this has to be post-exilic because why would they mention Greek slave trade? Okay. So in conclusion, so here's the bottom line. It's impossible to be dogmatic about the date of Joel's prophecy. 
it's basically what way is the wind blowing as far as when it's dated. We don't know. Okay? Nobody knows. Nobody can be dogmatic about it. Okay? Nobody can be dogmatic. Now, that creates a problem in some people's minds. They'll say, well, since we don't know exactly when it is, it can't be Scripture. Okay? Since we don't know who it is or who the author is, first of all, can I be honest with you? A lot of the books, we don't know who the author is. That's not taken away from the validity of Scripture. So the legitimacy of Joel is reflected in its use by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2. And on Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came down and the church was formed, the sermon that Peter preaches, that is listed in Acts chapter 2, he quotes several verses from this book, from Joel, as a part of his message, and he uses it to support what God is doing. So does that tell you that it's valid? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So the legitimacy of Joel is reflected in its use by the Apostle Peter. All right, so let's talk about the name. So I remember I told you names mean something, okay? In the Hebrew culture, when you gave somebody a name, it sometimes reflected what, the, what was happening in that family, the perspective of that family, or some event that was going on. So, for instance, how many of you remember from Chronicles the prayer of Jabez? There was a guy from one of the tribes. His name was Jabez. And he prayed, you know, and asked God that he would not be a pain anymore to, to anyone. Well, you know why he prayed that? Do you know what Jabez means? Pain. His name meant pain. So what, what was going on there? Maybe the mother had a terrible delivery or something. Maybe there was pain going on in the family at that time. And so he was given the name Jabez, pain. Isn't that, would you name your child pain? No. Huh? Okay, pain. Yes, that's a different name. Yes, okay. No, but pain as in, you know, hardship or whatever, okay? So here, the name Joel means Jehovah is God. All right, so his name means Jehovah is God. We know nothing about Joel except that he was the son of Pethuel. That's all we know about him. That's all the text tells you. Is it only tells you who he, who's his dad was. Doesn't tell you anything else about him. Just Joel. My dad is Pethuel. That's it. Okay? Now here's the crazy thing. With the Hebrews... That might be his granddad. Did you understand what I'm saying? Because they would, that I would be considered a, you know, I could say I'm the son of William Jesse. That's my grandfather, William Jesse Cannon. Okay, in the Hebrew culture, that would be legitimate. In our culture, we'd say, no, no, you don't claim your granddad. Who's your dad? Do you know what I'm saying? But their culture, so that may be he might be the son, or he may be of that family lineage. Okay. But we don't know who that lineage is, all right? From internal evidence, so from reading it, some scholars believe that Joel was a priest or a son of a priest. So the way that he talks about things within his prophecy, 
there's some who believe that he had to have been a priest or or maybe a son of a priest, okay? Which, by the way, to be a son of a Levite priest means you are a Levite priest, right? Okay? So, all right, so let's talk about the prophecy. So what, okay, so George, I think this is where it becomes relevant to you and I. And the date doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be hard to understand, okay? So, first of all, the prophecy was given with reference to a calamity that had engulfed the land. So, this prophecy was given because of some catastrophe, some disaster, okay, that had faced the nation. He references it to locusts and fire. The land was devastated by locusts and by fire. Now, what exactly the locusts were, that's for discussion later. But the point was is that the nation faced some sort of catastrophe, some sort of difficulty, okay? So the land was devastated by locusts and drought and from fires, okay? So the land was devastated by locusts and by fires. Now, some scholars think that the locusts were an invading army. So there are some scholars who believe that it's possible that when he talks about locusts here, locusts are basically a picture of an invading army. Well, that's how we kind of think of locusts, right? They don't just show up individually, they show up in mass. And we don't usually equate fire with locusts. They just eat everything. We do equate fires with what? An invading army, burning everything down. There's also a reference in the scripture, in the book of Revelation. There's a discussion of another in the future. There will be an army, and it describes these kind of fantastical locust creatures that will invade and destroy the land, okay? So that's why they think it's possible that what he's really talking about here is the national calamity that they faced was an invasion, okay? Which, okay, when did that happen, George? The question is, when didn't it happen? It really doesn't matter what the date is. Israel was constantly being, what, invaded by other armies, sometimes as punishment for their sin, right? Whether it was the the Assyrians or the Assyrians or Babylon or any of the others that they faced, okay? So, it is from the calamity that the prophet draws his lesson and the call to repentance. So, the whole basis of his prophecy is this calamity. And so, from the calamity, he's going to draw a lesson for his reader and basically call the reader to what? Repentance. Okay? Repentance. Now, anybody tell me what repentance is? What is repentance? Okay, turning away, Jane. Okay, that's good. Anybody else? What's repentance? Turning back to God, turning away from sin, turning back to God. What else? Anybody know? Not repeating it, okay? Stopping it, okay? Those are all good. I, I, I thought maybe somebody would say confession. 
because sometimes confession is a part of that, you know. But it's not confession. It's actually so much more, okay? So repentance is a changing of the mind. It's a changing of direction. And it entails what both Gene and Mike said. So it's a decision to turn away from your sins or your old life and now turning to God, as Mike said, you know, turning to the Lord and following what the Lord says. And so remember, we're all called to repentance. We're all called to what? Change our minds, abandon the old way, and embrace the new way. Okay? So when you follow Jesus and you understand who he is, you turn away from your old life and you follow him in the new life. That's repentance. So when the prophet is saying here is he's drawing a lesson from the calamity. He's trying to get them to come to a point where they will repent. Now, what are they repenting from? So what do we know already from Hosea? What kind of sins was Israel involved in? Idol worship. Okay. What else? I mean, that idol worship wasn't just bowing down and kissing the feet of some idol. They did some pretty horrendous things. We, we looked at it last week in the prophet. What, in Hosea, what, what kind of stuff were they doing? Yeah, they were sacrificing their children. Not just that, they were cheating each other, they were murdering each other, slandering each other. They were leading, I mean, they were doing everything against God's word. And he's calling them to repentance, to what? Turn away from that and turn back to God. Joel's doing the same thing, okay? Joel's doing the same thing. So unless there's repentance and righteousness from the nation, more judgment will come. Joel says it's just going to be more stuff coming. And we know that from life, right? We know that from life that if you don't respond, God will turn up the heat. Did you know what I'm saying? He'll turn up the heat to get your attention. Did you have your hand up, Lori? Yes, there is, and that's exactly right. Yes, so it's more than just a decision. It's a decision that results in new action or a new life, okay? Okay, that's good. That's a really good definition. And I, I think we've kind of been going there anyhow, but Lori's right. It's more than just making a decision because I can get up in the morning and say, I'm going to stop doing this, but if I'm not, did I really repent? Yeah, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to quit drinking whatever today. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? So that's not repentance. That's just you fooling yourself, right? Okay. So unless there's repentance, though, and righteousness from the nation, meaning Israel, more judgment will come. And we see that that's happening, right? Even to this day, we see that it's happening. Yeah, yeah. Because God wants them to turn to who, folks? To him and his son who is the Messiah, okay? All right, now, so here's the message. 
The message of Joel is this. The message of the prophecy is doom, the doom of the nations. So he's going to talk about how the nations around them, which they're emulating, they want to be like those nations. But he's saying, no, no, listen, those nations are doomed and the ultimate glory of God. That's the message we're going to see here in this book, okay? Now, this book is only three chapters long. Three chapters long. We may take it in two weeks. If I try to take it in one week, we're going to rush through that. And I've already heard somebody say, man, that's too much material. I want to get into this book. So let's let, we'll see if we'll take Joel in two weeks. All right? So that's the background material. How do we respond just kind of on that information? What, why would this book be a good book for us to read, to go through? Okay. Okay, that's good, Tim. So the date doesn't matter, so therefore the specific calamity doesn't matter, right? Would everybody agree with that? The specific, whether it is real locusts coming through and eating everything up and fires or an invading army, that really doesn't matter, does it? It actually makes the book timeless, right? Okay, because we're talking about a, a, the nation, Israel, but the lesson for us isn't how, how does this affect the U.S.? We're not talking about the U.S. We're talking about God's people. So how does it affect me when we go through calamity? What's the lessons there for me? Did you understand what I'm saying? And God's trying to get me a message about turning to him. Do you understand what I'm saying? And don't rely on those other nations because they're, they're doomed. You know, they're doomed. So yeah, it is timeless, isn't it? So I think it's going to be a good book to go through because the, unless everybody here has a perfect life where nothing wrong goes, happens, right? Does anybody here fall in that category? No, not at all, right? Okay, not at all. So I think it's going to be a really good book. It's also from this prophecy that there is a foreshadowing of what God wants to do with his people, which was partially manifested in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit came upon the people of God. Okay? So we're going to see that as well. All right?